Awesome. Thank you, Brennan. Um, I should mention a couple things. Uh, Brennan might have overpromised on my ability to get you out on time. I'm going to do my best. And also, I feel threatened because I have a solid giggle. I'm just going to say that. It's pretty good. Uh, I'm not going to prove it to you right now because I have nothing to prove. Okay? I'm a, I'm a confident person. Um, but I'm excited to be with you tonight. I, I love just the energy and the excitement and the passion that you guys bring to worship. And so I'm excited to share in that passion, energy, and excitement as we open God's word together tonight. But I want to begin with an observation or a statement that is true of me, and, and I'm going to admit or, or guess is probably true of you guys as well. And, and here it is. Here's my statement. I hate doing things that have no purpose. Like if somebody comes and says, hey, I have this thing that I want you to help me with. And by the way, it doesn't matter and it has no purpose. My response is going to be like, bro, why are you asking me? Right? If it doesn't matter and has no purpose, why, why would I do that thing? And half of you are thinking, that describes every group project we've ever been given in college. Right? We're not sure we learn anything. Nobody does anything. Uh, and it has no purpose. And so when the professor uh, assigns one, we kind of roll our eyes like nobody likes that. So, so for me, I had this example of a day wasted in purposeless work. And here's how the day started. Uh, twice a month, we do a, a grocery trip down to Sioux Falls. Uh, it's just cheaper. And so my wife will buy like bulk of groceries at like Costco. Like, you would think we're opening a cafeteria or something. So she's on her way back from Sioux Falls and a, a friend of ours, actually Pastor Dave's wife, Heidi, is with my wife and they're bringing in our haul of groceries and they get to our house and my, I, I had one job, right? My wife said, you have one job. Can you please just put the dog in our bedroom when we get to the house? And of course, I forgot because I'm thinking the dog doesn't need to go in the bedroom. That has no purpose. He'll be fine. So uh, my wife and Dave's wife, Heidi, walk in the door and, and Heidi has this armload of groceries and a gallon of milk on top. Our dog, <laughs> don't laugh, yeah. Our dog comes, <laughs> comes running down the stairs. He's a black lab and he like just shakes when he sees people, loves people. So our dog comes running down the stairs, jumps on poor Heidi and that gallon of milk goes falling, right? And I can see it in slow motion, you know, like in a movie when time like slows down. And I'm at the top of the stairs and part of me is like, do I dive down the stairs and sacrifice my body? Uh, but I watch this gallon of milk hit and it just explodes, right? In a giant milk bomb. Now there's a gallon of milk. We have a split foyer house and there's now a milk waterfall going down our stairs. And have you had a roommate leave a glass of milk out or a bowl of milk out? Or maybe you've spilled one and not noticed where it all went. You know that curdling smell? You know what I'm talking about? That's all I'm envisioning is like, great, our carpet on the stairs is ruined. And inside, like, it's not Heidi's fault. It's totally my fault because I biffed putting the dog away. And I'm just thinking, Aaron, don't be angry. Don't be angry. You're a mature adult. You can handle this. And so I go down and I'm trying to help clean things up. And now I'm standing. I just have socks on. I'm standing in milk. So my socks are soaked in milk. Our groceries are soaked in milk. And I'm thinking, okay, just get it out of the milk as quick as possible. So I grab a gallon of milk and I go to run up the stairs. Here's the problem. My feet are wet. Our stairs going up are wood stairs. <laughs> so you guys, I take two steps and this, this second step slips and again, it's slow motion. My face is going to eat it hard, 
Like I'm talking broken nose, bleeding hard because this hand is not like prepared to brace. So I do the only logical thing. I grenade that second gallon of milk. I toss it like airborne to catch myself. That second gallon of milk goes up into our kitchen, hits and explodes. I kid you not. So literally, this is not a joke because I'm at the moment where I can't handle anything. I walk outside and I literally stood there like this. And my wife goes, what's wrong with you? It's just a gallon of milk. It's not a big deal. And I just started shaking my head. She's like, what? I said, it's not one gallon. It's two. And she goes, what do you mean it's two gallons? And I had to explain to her why I grenaded this second gallon of milk. And I said it was either my face or the milk. And I chose poorly. I should have let the face take the impact. And you guys, I spent the next three hours. I had to pull out our refrigerator. I had to clean up all this milk and then get a a carpet cleaner. And I spent an hour of my life just trying to suck the milk out of the carpet because I didn't want to ruin it. And at the end of the day, not only was I stressed out, but literally I had accomplished nothing but getting my house back into the shape that it was in before I dumped two gallons of milk on the floor. I mean, a total day wasted. Did I invest a lot of time? Yes. Did that time matter for anything? Absolutely not. Did I succeed at something? Sort of. I sort of got the milk out of the carpet. Um, Till the day we ripped it out, it sort of had a weird smell, though. Never quite got it fixed. And at the end of that day, I find myself really frustrated because I felt like I just wasted half a day. Because literally nothing that I accomplished mattered in the long run. And here's what I want to suggest to you. I think we are tempted sometimes to invest our lives in things that have no purpose. I I heard somebody say it this way. It's been attributed to different people, but he said, I'm not afraid of failing. He said, rather, I'm afraid of succeeding at things that have no value. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. And sometimes my concern is just like I invested a lot of time and energy into something that ultimately had no purpose at the end of that day. I'm concerned that sometimes we're tempted to invest our lives, to put together a great five, 10 year plan, have it all figured out. But if we're not intentional and not careful to push into God's purpose for our lives, we can invest our lives in things that ultimately have no eternal significance. And here's, here's what I want to suggest tonight. Here's the big picture is that you and I are designed and created with purpose. We are designed and created to invest our lives in things of purpose. And this is all over scripture. In Genesis chapter one, it says that God created uh, people, male and female, and he created us in his image. He intentionally forms us. And if you read the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, over six days, God speaks creation into existence. And after every day, God says, it's good, it's good. Until day six, when he creates humanity, God says, this is very good. And that phrase, this is very good, speaks to the intentionality and the design and the purpose that that God has, has built into who we are. Elsewhere, scripture will say things like this. It will say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the reality is none of us are a cosmic accident. None of us are here without purpose. God has formed you and created you and designed uniquely and placed you on earth in this time, in this season, to be a part of the purpose that he's unfolding in the world. In in the New Testament, it it says it this way. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, 
And we have this on the screen for you. It says this. It says, but we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I love that. Look at that. We are God's handiwork. I love that. Other translation says that we are God's craftsmanship, right? Handiwork and craftsmanship, it speaks to intentionality. It speaks to design. It speaks to purpose. And notice that it says that God has designed good things for you to be a part of. Even before you know about them, God has a plan and a purpose for you that goes before you. Elsewhere in 1 Peter 4.10, it says it this way. It says, but each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. And what I love about this is here, uh, the writer of 1 Peter is acknowledging that we all have gifts. Notice that he says, use whatever gift. He doesn't highlight certain gifts or specific gifts in this particular passage. He just says, whatever gift, use it to serve other people. And notice in serving other people, we're called into something bigger than just ourselves. We're called to play a part in this redemptive purpose that God is unfolding. And he says, as you serve others, you function as faithful stewards of God's grace. That as you offer your life in service to other people, that you become a means, a conduit of God's grace being poured into the life of another person. If you take nothing else from tonight, take this, that you have a purpose. That God has designed and created you uniquely and intentionally for purpose. So, so here's, here's the question, right? Two questions. Um, what is my purpose? And what if I feel like I don't have a purpose? And, and, and here's, here's the reality. Right, I, I know the season of life that you're in, you feel a lot of pressure to figure out your purpose. If you're a freshman, you came to college and you had to pick a major and maybe you're thinking, I'm not even sure what I should do with my life. I guess I'll do this. And for some of you, you're seniors and you're getting ready to graduate and you're thinking, I don't even know if I like my major. And, and then you go home for Thanksgiving, right? And you're sitting down to family Thanksgiving and your aunt or your uncle or your grandma asks the dreaded question, so what are you going to do when you graduate? And you're thinking, I have no idea. I'm going to defer my student loans as long as possible and see if I can find a loophole. And so you, you feel this pressure to get it figured out and, and, and to find a purpose. And so often what happens when we wrestle with that question is, what is our purpose? My sense is that we attempt to do that apart from Jesus. We attempt to take it into our own hands and to find our own purpose. And so what happens is we often, I think, attempt to find significance and purpose in three ways. This is a pastor and theologian by the name of Henry Nouwen suggested these are three areas that we might attempt to find purpose on our own. He said, sometimes we attempt to find purpose in what we do. He means your vocation, your occupation, the thing that you might label yourself as. So when somebody says, tell me about yourself, you might say, well, I'm a student or, you know, I'm, I'm going to graduate and I plan to get a job in farming. And what happens is when we define our identity by what we do, I think we're driven to find success by achieving and performing. And then we begin to feel this pressure that when I'm achieving well, whether it's academically, maybe it's athletically, maybe it's relationally, when I'm doing my job well, I, I feel like I have meaning and purpose and significance. For others of us, we tempt to uh, uh, draw meaning and significance from what I have. These are the things that I possess. And so when we draw a sense of significance here, our tendency is to possess and impress. 
We want people to, to draw a sense of admiration for us based on the physical things that we own. We, we derive a sense of, of, of significance. We derive a sense of identity, of meaning and purpose, sometimes from the material possessions that we have. And, and finally, for some of us, we attempt to draw a sense of significance and purpose based on what others say about me. And when this is the case, I think we attempt to do two things. One, we try to please people. And secondly, we attempt to project an image of ourselves that we think people will speak highly of. This is an attempt to, to garner a good reputation. And, and here's the question we look at that and we say, well, isn't a good reputation, isn't that good? Yes, having a good re- reputation is not a bad thing, but there's something deeper. I think really what we should be is a people who cultivate character and integrity because you can have a good reputation, but have no character or integrity substance underneath that. And so often what happens here is that we become people pleasers and we cultivate an image of ourselves that we assume will be socially accepted and validated by other people. And one of the primary areas that we do this is we are really great through social media at cultivating a persona or cultivating, as the influencers say, a personal brand, all to an attempt to have people validate who we are. No, I want you to notice something about this. When we draw meaning, purpose, and significance from these places, what we're doing is, is we're focusing on what I do, what I have, or what other people say about me. Do, do, I mean, do you notice the common theme? This reduces life to me. And so what happens is these things begin to collapse in on itself and my purpose for life becomes how can I use people around me to bolster my self-image and our purpose collapses in on itself and we spend our lives investing in in essentially serving ourselves. And what you find is that if life is only about you, that gets pretty small pretty quick. And we are called into something so much deeper than just living life for ourselves, trying to be successful and have a lot of things and have people think well of us. Life is so much deeper than that. And my concern is that we're good at putting together a plan, right? A plan is what you're going to do with your life. So your plan might be uh, to to graduate and go back to the family farm or to get a job in banking or you want to get married and have a family and become an engineer. And you've got a plan or you're developing a plan, or you're panicking about not having a plan. But my concern is that we move beyond what we're going to do, and we begin to, in Christ, seek our purpose, which is, why does all this matter? See, the plan is the logistical steps of what you're going to do next in life. The purpose is underneath all that stuff. Why does it matter? Why does it have purpose? And my concern is that life apart from Jesus, I misspelled that, that'll drive somebody nuts. My concern is that apart from Jesus, when we attempt to find purpose on our own, we develop a distorted sense of what life is about. And then what happens is these things start to collapse right? Maybe you get an injury and suddenly as an athlete, you can't perform anymore. Maybe you're an academic person. And so you derive a great sense of meaning and purpose from your ability to get good grades and to do well. And you've got your eyes set on the right uh, med school program or law school program. And suddenly you hit a class and you just, you can't get the grade that you want. And suddenly your ability to perform collapses. 
Or maybe somebody starts saying something about you and your reputation takes a hit. And what happens is when this is where we derive our sense of purpose, when one of these collapses, we often experience a sense of brokenness, uh, sometimes a meaning of uh, uh, a season of hopelessness. And, and we find ourselves then in this place of brokenness going, how do I find a way forward? But the problem is we have developed our whole sense of meaning in life apart from Jesus and attempted to do it solely on our own. And life collapses in on itself being just about us. So in Ezekiel chapter 37, there's this moment where the people of Israel find themselves in a season, in a situation where they are are feeling broken and hopeless. The people of Israel, if you were to read the Old Testament, uh, God made a covenant with them. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people And when God makes a covenant with you, God is faithful to fulfill his promise. And so essentially what God told the people of Israel is, I promise to always have your back. I promise to protect you and care for you and provide for you. And when God made that covenant, he told Abraham, uh, the forefather that he had made this covenant promise with, he said that through the people of Israel, all nations will be blessed. And so the people of Israel had this purpose in the way that they did life. They were always to bear witness to the hope of what God was doing in the world. They were always to bear witness to the God of Israel, who was a God who fulfilled his promise, who was a God who was faithful. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you know that the people of Israel struggled to live and to walk in obedience and faithfulness, that time and again, they found themselves in rebellion. And in the time of Ezekiel, the people of Israel are in captivity in Babylon. And in Babylon, they are being oppressed. They are being held down. They're not able to worship in the way that God has called them to worship. And they are living in a season where they feel despair and brokenness and hopelessness. I want to pick up for you there in Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. It says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. This is the prophet Ezekiel. And he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together uh, bone to bone. And I looked and the tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breathe from the four winds, breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open up your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then my people will know that I am the Lord. When I open up your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord have spoken. I have done it 
declares the Lord. And so there's this scene where the prophet Ezekiel is brought to this valley that's full of dry bones. It's likely that this was an ancient battle site. I say this for two reasons. One, it would be highly unusual to have a valley filled with that many bones. But secondly, when the bones are brought to life, you'll notice that God says that a vast army stood before him. So imagine this grim sight that greets Ezekiel. God leads him out to this valley and he looks and it's full of just bones as far as he can see. I mean, what a hopeless sight. And did you catch the metaphor that God communicated to Ezekiel? He said, Ezekiel, these bones represent the disposition of the people of Israel. They feel and seem utterly hopeless. And did you notice the question that God asks Ezekiel? He says, son of man, can these bones live? Now, Ezekiel's a better man than I am because if I'm looking at a valley full of dry bones, I'm like, mm, I don't think so. Now, I've never seen that happen. I don't think these dry bones can live. Ezekiel's a little bit wiser. Notice how he responds. He says, God, you alone know, right? He's not totally confident, but he plays it off a little bit better. And what God is asking him is this, is Ezekiel, in a hopeless, despairing situation, do you think that the God of all creation can still bring his purpose to fruition? Because the people of Israel, they feel as dead and dry as this valley of bones. They feel cut off. They feel crushed. They feel as if their purpose is no more. And what happens is in that valley of death, he, he says, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy. I want you to declare my word. And, and Ezekiel begins to, to speak this word that God gave him. And, and you saw what happened. The bones came together and God brought life where once there was death. God brought hope where once there was despair. And what I see in this story is this reality. Catch this. There is no situation beyond the ability for God's grace to redeem. Maybe you're walking through a difficult season. Maybe the transition to college has been harder than you thought. Maybe all the disruption with COVID has been really frustrating. Maybe your family at home is going through a difficult season. Maybe you in college are just feeling lonely and you're struggling. Maybe you're encountering a situation and you're going, God, I don't see a way through or out of this. It feels hopeless and it feels purposeless. Do you believe that in that place that God can still provide? That there's no situation that God cannot redeem? Because that's exactly what he's telling Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, this seems and feels hopeless, but if I can bring dead bones back to life, surely I can restore and redeem Israel. I can restore and redeem my people. And what happens is as God redeems and restores Israel, catch this, he renews their purpose. Notice what happens beginning in verse 21. Let me read this for you. He says, Ezekiel, I want you to say to them, this is what the Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations, right? They're in captivity. They're in Babylon. That is not their home. God's saying, I will bring them out of that. He says, I will make them into a new nation and there will be one king over them. They'll no longer defile themselves with their idols, with their images, for I will save them from their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and they'll be careful to keep my decrees and they will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob. They and their children and their children's children. Verse 26, he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them. My dwelling place will be with them. 
And catch this, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And what he's doing is he's reminding and restoring their identity. He says, the people of Israel, they are to be the people of the one true God. They are to be the people who live their life in obedience and relationship to him. Verse 28, he says this. He says, then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy. Did you catch that last part? He says, then the nations will know. This is a restoration of the purpose of Israel. God chose Israel to be the people through whom the Messiah, Jesus, would come and redeem and restore a world that is desperately broken. And he says, through Israel, as he renews their purpose, their purpose is to consistently bear witness to this saving, restoration, redemptive work that God is doing. And I believe that as you encounter the God of all creation and enter a relationship with him, that he can restore and renew and redeem your purpose. And in fact, and when you read the New Testament and we ask, what, what is the purpose of the people of God? In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commissions his disciples. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. And in this last moment in Matthew 28, when Jesus is gathered with his disciples, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to go, go to all the nations. This is your purpose. And church, what I want us to recognize is that life is not about us, but it's that as we encounter Jesus, right, your life begins to look different. And how we need to live is sent in service to others. And as we are sent in service to others, what we're doing is we're telling them about Jesus who has so radically transformed and redeemed our lives. Listen, you can live life all about yourself and I can tell you exactly where it will lead. If you live life for yourself, taking advantage of others to, to achieve and perform and to have a good reputation, you will end up lonely and disconnected and with a life that lacks the fullness that God intends. But Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullness or the abundance if you want to know the fullness of life, there's this invitation to join your life in relationship with Jesus and to live sent in service. And, and the great paradox of this whole thing is you find purpose as you give your life away. You find your life and your purpose as you surrender yourself fully and freely to Jesus. Because the same God who restored and redeemed Israel and renewed their purpose can restore and redeem you and renew your purpose. So here, here's my last question that I want to ask is, how do we begin to step into our purpose? What does that look like? How do we, how do we begin to actively move towards what this looks like? And, and I think Ezekiel gives us some great insight. Stepping into our purpose, I want to leave you with four things. I think first and foremost, we have to respond to God's invitation. Did you notice that in verse 26, he said, I will make a covenant of peace with them. That language of covenant is relational language. God says, I want to live and dwell among my people and I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the language of relationship. And what I want you to know tonight is that the God of all creation sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled back to God that we could live in a close and intimate relationship with him. You want to know where your purpose starts? It starts right here with Jesus. 
And I'm not saying that as a cliche thing as a pastor. I'm saying that as a person who's a Christ follower who believes that with my whole being. You want to discover your purpose, surrender your life to Jesus, and you'll find a deeper purpose than you ever knew existed. And and, and that's the question. Will you respond to that invitation? To the God who says, come, follow me. To the Jesus, the Savior who says, I've come that you might experience the fullness of life. Secondly, stepping into our purpose is not just about responding to God's invitation. It's about radical obedience. And what I mean by this is we're pretty good at developing our plan, right? Even if you don't know exactly what it's going to be, you're in college, so you're taking a step in that direction. And maybe you have a five-year plan for your life of what you think you'd like to have happen. Maybe you'd like to get married. You'd like to get a job. You'd like to have a stable income. And we're really good about having a plan for our life. And listen, that's, that's not all bad. But here's where I think the problem lies. I think what happens is we put together a plan for our lives and we never invite God into the process. And, and the problem is when you respond to God's invitation to live in relationship with him, part of what happens is God says, will you surrender your plan to my purpose? And, and when you do that, God will call us in radical ways to be obedient to his leading, guiding, and directing. I mean, look no further than the example of Ezekiel. I, I, I kind of chuckled as I read this because I was thinking about Ezekiel being led to this valley of dry bones. And as he goes out to this valley, there's a couple things. One, in his culture, if he touches a dead body, he would be considered unclean. And by the way, Ezekiel is a priest, so he would not be able to worship and he would not be able to be in relationship with other people, right? He would have to COVID quarantine, right? Back in that day. So there is a risk and even being among these bones. And if I'm Ezekiel, I'm like, God, what are you doing? Why are you bringing me here? And, and then as, as he's standing there, God tells Ezekiel, he says, I want you to prophesy to these bones. Now, prophesy, what, what he means by that is, is like, I want you to preach a message. I want you to proclaim a word to them. And do you guys realize the absurdity of what God just said? I want you to preach to dead people. So, I mean, if I'm Ezekiel, I would be like, uh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Yeah. Right? But Ezekiel, he belts this out, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I mean, imagine if you drove by the cemetery and you saw Pastor Ben out there just preaching amazing message to the gravestones. You'd be like, uh, should we check on him? Is he, is he okay? Is this a COVID response? I mean, what's going on here? Like, is he ill? And yet here is Ezekiel being obedient to what God has called him to do. And he steps out and starts preaching a message to dead people. And what, the reality is that God had something miraculous for him on the other side of that obedience. And here's what I want to suggest to you. If you're going to respond to God's invitation to live in relationship with him, it will require a radical, obedient life of submission and surrender, of giving up your plan to say, God, what you want to do with my life, I give over to you. I will go where you call me. And that doesn't mean that God throws your plan out the window, but it does mean God calls you to invest your life in a new way, in a different way, in a way that's not all about you. God will call you to invest your life in service to others, telling them about him. And suddenly your life becomes about the redemptive possibilities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's about responding to that invitation. It's about radical obedience, but it's also about removing sinful practices. Notice what happens in verse 23. 
Ezekiel, or, or God says this to Ezekiel. He says, they, my people, will no longer defile themselves with their idols. Let me stop there. When I say idols, that's the one we go, okay, we're safe. Because we imagine an idol like a little statue that people bow down to and we go, well, we don't have idols. But let me tell you what happens. When we are drawing meaning, purpose, and significance from here, achieving and performing can become our idols. This is the thing that we worship. And so we feel good about ourselves when we're achieving and performing well, and we feel down in the dumps when we're not. In other cases, what we possess, the possessions that we own, become the thing that we worship. And by worship, I don't mean that we're singing songs to them or bowing down to them. What I mean is we place them in a place of greater importance in our lives than God himself. And God says when he restores his people, they'll remove these wrong pursuits, these things that they have placed in greater importance in their life than God. And then he continues and he says this, and I will save them from their sinful backsliding. Now, by sinful backsliding, what he means there is a life that is oriented away from God and turned away in rebellion. This is a life where somebody says, forget you, God, I'm going to do things my own way. This is somebody who wants to live life for themselves. And sometimes we look at this and we go, man, like the sinful backsliding, I get what it's talking about, but sometimes it just feels like the church and Christianity and God's call, like, is God just trying to not have us have any fun? And, and partly this idea that God saves us and redeems us from sin causes us to question, do we really believe that the fullness of life is found in Jesus? Because if we do, what we have to recognize is that being saved from our sins and being pulled back to life in Jesus is an invitation into right living and into the fullness of life. And by the way, what I love about this is God says, I will save you from your, your sinful practices. Here's why I think that's important. Who is the active person? God doesn't say you will save yourself. He says, no, I will save you. And the reason that's important is this. When we give ourselves over to sinful things, one theologian said it this way. He says, sin always keeps us longer than we wanted to stay and always takes us farther than we wanted to go. And the reality is what we think we once controlled comes to consume us. We could talk about something like porn, right? I mean, that's so pervasive in our culture and on the one hand, we could try to rationalize it. It doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody knows it's happening. I can do it in privacy and nobody knows it's there. But the number of people that I sit down with and have conversations about the relationships and friendships that have fallen apart because they have become addicted to porn is staggering. Because what it does is porn teaches you to objectify people and see them as objects to be used for your pleasure. It does a very violence to what it means to be human. And so we could look at that and say, well, that call to away from sinful backsliding towards Jesus, that's not a call that, because God doesn't want us to have fun. No, it's an invitation back into the fullness of life and the freedom from the things that hold us in bondage. Because the things that we think we can control that are not of God, those sinful things end up controlling us. But God says, even in that place where you feel hopeless and bound to addiction, I can save you and redeem you and restore your purpose. And finally, it's this. It's responding to God's invitation. It's radical obedience. It's removing sinful practice. And it's realigning your life with God's word. Look at verse 24. He says, my servant David will be king and they'll have one shepherd. Catch this. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. 
Now, in this time, they didn't have the Bible, right? Their law was the first five books of the Bible. That's what they referred to as the Jewish law. And so he says, in this time, when my people have had their purpose renewed, they will align their lives with the truth of my word, and that will be the thing that guides how they live. And what I want us to recognize tonight is as we respond to that invitation to live life with Jesus, as we remove those sinful practices, as we, as we align ourselves in radical obedience and align ourselves with God's word, we will experience a renewal of your purpose because God is inviting us into something that is so much bigger than ourselves. Because here's the reality, is our identity does give shape to our purpose. Pastor Ben talked about identity a couple weeks ago, so I'm not gonna rehash everything he said, but this, our identity does shape our purpose. And, and the problem is we, we, we sometimes try to reverse that. We try to find our purpose in here and say that this says something about our identity. But listen, we have to recognize that our identity is that we are the people of God. And when we recognize that in Jesus, we are the people of God that redefines the very things that we are living life for. If you take nothing else from tonight, I pray that you take this that you have a God-ordained and designed purpose and you have a very real invitation from the God of all the universe to step into relationship with him and to step into a life that's bigger and more beautiful and rich than you can ever imagine. The question is, what will you do with that invitation? In just a moment, we're gonna do something that you guys do every night. We're gonna have a moment of prayer. The band's gonna come out and, and play and give us a moment to reflect. I encourage you to think through those things. Have you responded to God's invitation? Are you radically obedient? Is there a place where God's saying, hey, I want you to surrender this to me? Is there a place where you need to realign your life according to God's word, something he's convicting you about? Is there something that needs to be removed from your life and laid down so you can step fully into that purpose? And if you want somebody to pray with you or for you, there's a prayer team in the back. You can just quietly make your way out there and they would love to pray with you and for you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And it is amazing that the God of all the universe sees us as individuals. You see each one of us in the uniqueness that you've created us with. And we recognize and we affirm the truth of your word that we have a purpose. And God, you want us to step fully into the plan and purpose that you have for us. That we indeed are your craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which you've prepared in advance for us to do. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage in your grace this evening to step fully into your purpose for our lives. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your love for us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.